My name is Phil Williams and I would like to welcome you to Audio Angling, the podcast site of fishingfilmsandfacts.co.uk. On the subject of England caps and medal wins of any colour, shore angler Chris Clark, who I'm linking up with here, is right up there in the mix with England's all-time best. Also ranked as number one in the world, back in 2001, that suddenly all came to a very abrupt end. It most certainly did. 2001 was a very strange year for me. At the end of March, I'd just gone out to Porto Santo with the England junior team. Porto Santo is a small island off Madeira. They'd done very well, and one of the lads got a gold individual medal, and we came back on a high. Came back on the farm, and we had a shutdown on the farm. All the staff were away, and employed quite a lot of staff. We had a factory there as well. So I was actually having to do some work and get my hands dirty, which is quite unusual for me. And I was on this wretched machine which, when the safety system failed and I got crushed underneath a three-ton bucket, which didn't do me much good at all. Very strangely, and quite unusual, I had my mobile phone in my pocket and I very rarely use mobiles, but I was, luckily enough I did the old 999 and they came on straight away and I told them I needed help quickly because this three-ton bucket was slowly coming down on me and I was in the right state, I couldn't move. They rang me back and kept me chatting. They had somebody there within five minutes with the jack to stop this thing coming right down. But it was about two foot above my head when they arrived, so it's something I have nightmares about even to this day, actually. But, yeah, they carted me off to hospital where I spent the next six weeks, and my arm was broken beyond repair. I think I had something like 17 breaks in my upper arm. So I've now got a metal ball joint in my shoulder with a metal rod going down to my elbow. All four crucians from my right knee are snapped, plus a broken left finger and very other bits and pieces. So I was a bit of a state and took them six weeks to put me back together as much as they could, during which time they told me I may be in a wheelchair for the rest of my life, which didn't go down very well with me because I'm not one to take things like that sat down. <laughs> Quite literally in this case. Literally, yeah. When I eventually came out after six weeks, they said to me I've got to take things very, very easy and fishing was out of the question. But... Within two or three days, I was in the swimming pool doing sort of very minor swimming things. Within four weeks, I had the wife taking me fishing on the rocks down at Portland with my leg all done up and a brace fishing with one arm. So, yeah, I got back fairly quickly. It was very painful, but just prior to going away, the England teams had been selected that year, and I'd been actually selected for the world team, which was going down to southwest France, but which was not very easy beaches to fish. The selectors, which I'll always be grateful to, they actually left my position open after the accident. They could have gone and got some, put the reserve straight in, but they left it open. And that really gave me the will, the determination to actually do all the physiotherapy, which I was told. And apart from that, I was doing it sort of five times more, I suppose. <laughs> and the World Championship came around in the end of September, which I went to. And I fished with my leg in a brace and basically with one arm. And I got a bronze individual medal, which to me, means more than any other medal I've won, more than even individual gold. Because I think it was sort of, I fought my way back. Um, I had to change my fishing style completely, because obviously I can no longer pendulum cast, because I can't lift my arm up. So it changed my life for forever, I suppose. But in a way, it's changed it for the better. I think I'm probably far more happy and content with what I do now. I don't have to work as well, which is another bonus. <laughs> so yes, it's one of those strange ones. It was terrible at the time, and I was in an awful lot of pain with it. But on hindsight, it may have done me a bonus. (laughs) And dare I say it, but as a result of the accident, England's losses on the one hand in some ways turned out to be the gains on the other, as your focus began to take on a new direction both as an Angling Trust ambassador and also as manager of a very successful under-16 squad. 
Yes, um, now where would he start? Which do we start first? Well, it changed the way the starlight fish. I had to go over to long rods and fixed pools rather than a multiplier, which is far more in keeping with fishing at world level. So it meant I was actually learning to fish as they do on the continent more than they do in the UK, which it actually broadened my horizon as far as fishing was concerned. It gave me a completely different field of vision to fish by, and that's done me a tremendous amount of good since then. So, yes, I am still fishing at a very high level. Actually, I won a big open yesterday. But it's also made me give far more time to coaching, England junior team, etc., etc. Only once I've taken the team away, and I've taken them away many times, and they've not come back with a medal. And that was the very first time I took them away, which I only had two weeks' notice when the manager dropped out. And the manager was a guy called Mike North. He dropped out two weeks before the event and I was asked to go, which I did, and the team came forth. Since then, on every occasion I've taken them away, they've either got individual or team medals, so I must be doing something right, I think. But I actually enjoy coaching and working with kids. I like to see the smiling faces when they catch fish. Yeah, it just gives me a buzz. As far as an ambassador for the Angling Trust is concerned, um, where do we start? First of all, I suppose there are some which say, why do we need... Uh, national gunning body. We want to be left alone. We want the status quo. I'm afraid we live in a changing world. There's no such thing as a status quo. We're in the EU and individually we cannot do anything. So in my opinion it's very important to have a strong national body. I'm not saying the Angling Trust is a strong national body but it's important that we have a strong national body. And that is why I'm working for the Angling Trust as an ambassador trying to get the members, because I really believe we need that national voice. Without it, we're completely lost. As an individual, I can do nothing in the EU. United, we can go forward and perhaps make a difference. That's the main reason I'm in the Angling Trust. Whether they're doing a good job or not is open to debate. I'll leave others to decide on that. I believe you recently decided to hand the managerial reins over to David Graham to become more involved with the Trust Talent Pathway Scheme. Well, yeah, David Graham, he's a good friend of mine, and um, his young son, Callum Graham, I first took him to a World Championship in Spain when he was 13. The lad, since then, come up and he's become a World Junior Champion now. He's up in the youth team and doing very, very well. And I met David then. David was very interested within the coaching programme. Obviously, you can't go on forever. You've got to hand over the reins somewhere to somebody else. And David is a, an ideal candidate to hand it over to. You've got to have the right temperament with kids when you're working with youngsters. You've got to know how to handle them. Every youngster's different as well. And it's not just coaching, it's having the ability to know how to handle different youngsters. You know, some need more of a mothering sort of instincts. Some, it's completely different. And David's got those qualities. So I brought David working with me and he slowly, he's now manager of the home international team. I'm slowly getting him to take over the world team this year. He's going to be manager of the world team, but I'm still going as assistant. But he wants, still wants some, some help, because obviously I know the venues abroad a lot better than what he does. So, yes, you've got to be realistic. You can't go on forever. Everything comes to an end somewhere. So tell us more about this angling pathway, how it works, and what was wrong with the old idea of people doing it for themselves as a pathway to the top. The Tannum pathway, in my opinion, is it's a must, and it's way the England anglers are going to come in from them in the future. It's strange. When you're picking a team for a world championship, you could tear up the CVs. 
A CV from English matches means nothing when you're taking somebody to South Africa or Brazil. The fishing out there is totally different to the English style of fishing. There's no good taking somebody who may have won 20 matches catching dogfish in Flanders if you can be catching little bream on size 10 hooks and this sort of thing. So the talent pathway is teaching youngsters at a young age basically how to fish the continental style and once they come up through they go up through the youth and so forth and then they come to the seniors before we had a squad system which worked there's no doubt that the squad system was working the talent pathway is very similar but because it's sport england back we get some funding for it which is obviously very useful last year we trod along the south coast and it was really successful very much a paper trail after every session a lot of forms are filled in and it was quite interesting at the end of the year to see the graphs how virtually all the youngsters their graphs have gone up as their skill levels have got better you could actually see it and it's very very gratifying at the end of that ideally we'd like to rule the talent pathway out across the whole of the country and not only have one based in the south have one based on the east coast one on the west coast and one down in the southeast and then what you would do is have the top juniors of each of the talent pathways into a central body so you could actually pick your best anglers for the teams from there. But it's just getting people to give up their time to do it. With juniors and so forth, one of the keys is having the parents to support the kids. Unless they've got supportive parents, you're on a hiding to nothing, I'm afraid. You say that it's difficult getting parents and other responsible adults to do things. But is there not also a more fundamental frustration and the lack of interest from youngsters themselves in getting them to fish and work their way through to the senior ranks? Because without them, the shore match angling pool must eventually dry up. Very, very true, and that's why we're trying to do this, to try to get the interest. There's very few fishing clubs now, actually, clubs which hold junior session. My own club, actually, they're very proactive with the juniors. We had a junior competition on Saturday night. I think they had 15 kids out between 8 and 16 fishing. But we've got a lot of very keen people within the club coaching people. But one of the reasons putting a lot of people off coaching the kids is because of the restrictions. Because of your CRB checks, your coaching things, and your um, all the other things you need to do it. Bit of a minefield, really. Yeah, I know what you mean. But will the supply of new blood eventually completely dry up, leaving shore match angling as a relic of history? No, I don't think it will do. I think eventually we're going to see it swing back the other way. At the moment, it's going very much the kids getting into all their Xboxes and all the other things, whatever they do. I don't know. They are far too complicated for me. But I think you're going to find it's going to get to a certain level. It's going to go back the other way again. But it needs a strong national body to promote it and get the coaches out there and get it into schools, really, to show the youngsters there are other things than just sat down doing nothing. Talk of strong governing bodies leads us very nicely into the work you do for SIPs. SIPS is the international governing body and there's three different bodies under SIPS. I belong to FIPSM which is the Federation International Peshmer, the International Sea Angling Federation. I sit on the technical committee representing shore anglers worldwide. I'm the only shore angler on the committee. There's one boat angler on there, there's one caster on there and so on. It involves a lot of work as far as I'm concerned. This year alone in the space of eight weeks between mid-October and mid-December I'm away on four trips for six weeks out of eight, um, going to different world championships, making sure the rules are adhered to, making sure you just run smoothly, basically. One of the requirements, obviously, of sitting on the board, you've got to speak French and English. French is a bit of a struggle for me, but I sort of managed to muck my way through sort of thing. 
Well, I was under the impression that English was the recognised international language. Or is it just a case of the French being French yet again? It used to be uh, three languages, French, English and German, but they've dropped the German. But when you think of it worldwide, a lot of people say that Spanish or Italian and Portuguese should be actually put in because Spanish, Portuguese and Italian are all very, very similar and you think the whole of South America is all Spanish or Portuguese or Cantonese when you're talking China now. Their language should be spoken, so it's difficult. The problem stems from many years ago from when FIPSM was first born. The then NFSA, which I was not a member of back in those days, thank goodness, didn't want to know. So basically all the rulings and everything were done by the French and the Germans. So we had no influence at all when it was set up. I've been a member of the board now for 12 years and I've got a lot changed. And there's still an awful lot which needs doing, but it all takes time. If you try to rush and do too many things together, they just sort of shut the door on you almost. It's a softly, softly sort of thing. But we're getting there slowly. And as if that lot wasn't enough to keep you busy, you've also got the work you do for Sea Angler magazine. Oh, I think that's great. I'm out tomorrow, actually. Good old traditional flounder feature with spoons. Using the flounder spoons tomorrow in Pool Harbour. I enjoy doing that. I enjoy writing as well, actually. Um, I also write for several local papers as well, a full page in each, and it's great fun. I enjoy it. You don't do it for what you get paid for, as you probably know why. You don't get paid very much. You've got to have a passion for it to do it, I think. A lot of the time you get people who never put my name in or something else, but um, you do it because you enjoy doing it. Something else from our pre-recording chat that I'd like you to pick up on is SAMF, the Sea Angling Match Federation which in its day completely revolutionised shore match fishing, and which I know you was both involved with and still have strong feelings about. Well, initially SAMP was set up by Clive Richards and Alan Yates as a rival to the old NFSA, basically, because NFSA would not accept cash prizes, almost big matches. They were very set in the dark ages, so SAMP was formed with Clive Richards and Alan Yates. Matter of interest, I'm going to Ireland with those two... Um, in three weeks' time. So that's going to be interesting. We'll be seeing Alan and Clive again over there. So SAMF was formed, and it was a very, very strong match handling body to start with. Um, when Alan stepped down as chairman, I took over chairman. I was chairman of SAMF myself for six or seven years. At that stage, I think they had four or five hundred members, and it was quite a strong match handling group. Unfortunately, like most things, now they can't get people to do jobs. I understand at the AGM this year, um, the chairman who was Darren Phillips was complaining bitterly because nobody wanted to do anything. And it's the same as the rest of the world, really. Everybody wants everybody else to do anything, but nobody wants to get off the butts and do things themselves. The UK Masters, which is a major competition, I won that twice. The first time I won it was up on the Durham beaches up in the northeast. And I think there was something like almost 300 people fishing it. And you had to qualify to get into it then. But now they're struggling to get 60 people and you can actually just pay to go in without qualifying. So that shows you how it's changed. Things seem to have changed across the whole angling scene these days in terms of recruitment. But wasn't it Sam that orchestrated some of the biggest changes the shore match angling scene has ever seen? Purely at the time it was only say people such as Alan Yates and Clive Richards, they wanted money prizes. The NFSA would not accept money prizes. So they said, right, we'll set up our own organisation which will do money prizes. That's the one reason why SAMP was formed. And initially when SAMP was formed, not apart from that, they did some very good trips abroad. They did one trip to Iceland, actually, which I went to, going back many years ago now. And that was a fantastic trip away. The SAMP has brought and done a lot of good. But 
they just haven't got the numbers there on the field. They haven't got the members now. I think the members are down to about 100, which for such a major match organisation as such is not particularly good. Yeah, but it's not just Stamp, though. More a sign of the times. You're right, it's a sign of the times. Um, there's so many things to do in life nowadays. And I say, when I was a youngster, you didn't have all these computer games and so forth to play with. You, yeah, you went out fishing. Especially when you're a country lad. So I was born and bred in the country. And yeah, I was doing it at the age of about five. Down on the river with a little rod, being chased by his lordship's gamekeeper and getting caught sometimes, getting good smack around the ear. <laughs> An occupational hazard, that was. That's the sort of area I was coming to next, actually. On a couple of occasions earlier, we touched on the Angling Trust pathway scheme. But what we haven't discussed as yet is your own personal pathway and how, in a different tier of international squad recruitment, you work your way through to the top. Well, I suppose being uh, always in a farming community, I've always been out on the land where you've got lakes and rivers and so forth. And as kids back in those days, we were left run to a while. We used to go rabbiting and with the ferrets. And I suppose I was, my first fishing was probably at the age of about six. And I had a World War Two tank aerial for rod. Uh, I don't know if you ever remember. They were lovely little rods, they were. <laughs> and used to get down in the local brook and say after the wild brownies. And I'd say, we used to upset his lordship's gamekeeper immensely. <laughs> but it was great fun. It didn't do us any harm. Didn't do them any harm. And that's when I started. My first sea fishing trip wasn't until I was about 16 or 17, I don't think. And strangely enough, I didn't fish a match until after I got married. So I don't know whether that says something about married life or not, but um, I've been married for 43 years, so I can't do any harm. <laughs> <laughs> no comment. That was the launching pad, but what about the journey itself? I first was selected for England for the home internationals, I think, when I was about 30, I suppose. It was the second home international ever organised, which I held, which I fished. And then I fished in the home internationals for many years. The first time we went to a world championships was in 1989, because the NFC wouldn't have anything to do with world bodies, as I already said. And in 89, the world championships were in Ireland. And the Irish Federation actually paid the NFC's affiliation fees to FIPSM, so they would send a team to that championship in Ireland. And I was a part of that team. And actually, I've been to every world championship since 89, senior one. Not always fishing. Sometimes I've been organising. Sometimes I've been there wearing my SIPS cap. But I've been to every world championship since. But that first championship we fished in Ireland, we got a silver team medal. And Peter Owen, who now owns a tackle shop in Folkestone, he got the individual gold medal. The following year, we went to world championships were fished in Holland in 1990 and the England team got the gold medal there. So we started off pretty well actually back in those days. See, we didn't know much about it but how angling has changed since those initial days is mind-boggling. You cannot believe how the tackle and everything changed because we were always taking the mickey out of our continental anglers about their long flopping rods and their crankle-wankle winders as we call them, the fixable wheels, the coffee grinders. But now we're all using them and doing the same. It's incredible how it's changed and to great effect if your own personal results are anything to go by. Obviously I've been world champion, and I think I've got more medals than anybody else in the world at shore angling, so I'm led to believe. I've got gold, silver and bronze individual, several bronze medals, and the best was, in my opinion, the one I won in southwest France when I had my accident. That really means a lot to me, that one. And I've won pretty well everything there is going, I suppose. Um, the UK Masters have won and many of the competitions, Winter Beach Championships in Ireland I've won several times. 
But one of the proudest moments, I suppose, of my whole angling career, I've been to Buckingham Palace a couple of times to garden parties, which was certainly one of the highs. Um, particularly the second junior team I ever took away, I took to Holland, and they got a gold team medal, and they got gold and silver individual medals. And I was asked to take the team up to meet the Queen at Buckingham Palace in an evening reception. And that was something special. The kids were over the moon with it going up there. And I had to introduce all of them to Her Majesty, which was an honour. But I suppose my biggest highlight was running with the Olympic torch in 2012. That was really special. It was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, and I think I was the only angler who actually ran with the torch. Yeah, it really was uh, something special, especially running through my hometown as well. We've mentioned declining participation, which many put down to a combination of fewer fish and changing attitudes amongst young people who prefer to live their lives locked away in the bedroom, sending tweets, texts and playing computer games. If this is actually the case, what needs to be done to reverse the decline and by whom? It needs a very strong national body to start with, to focus on it. There needs to be money made available, but you've got to get their parents involved and I think that's the biggest stumbling block. The parents sometimes are quite happy to drop kids off and just let you look after them sort of thing. But you need more than that if you want to get the kids enthused in it. And uh, hands up, I don't really know what the answer is. I just don't know. Um, I say, tonight here, it's I think it's about minus four outside. Well, for a kid, it's a lot better sat in front of his computer and what it is out with a fishing rod, isn't it? <laughs> I was out with the Limited Junior Saturday night. They, they had had a dozen or so kids out. It was bitterly cold. Then I thought to myself, well, what are you youngsters doing out here? Some of them are getting cold right through, but they stuck it out and they caught an awful lot of fish, actually. Yeah. And a nine-year-old won it. He had eight metres of fish in two hours, which is incredible fishing. But you need the people who are prepared to give out the time to take them, and that is getting the volunteers. While the Angling Trust, your national body, can do so much, you need the volunteers. And those volunteers are just not coming through because... Everybody seems to be too busy today. I suppose back in my time when I first started out, generally you got married. The husband, when there was a bread owner, the wife stayed at home and did the cooking and you know everything else. But things are changing now, aren't they? Life's different. As I said earlier, nothing stays the same in this world. There's no such thing as a status quo. The people who say we need the status quo, we want to be just left alone, it will never happen. Everything changes. It changes every day. Something is changing. And you've got to change and keep up with the times. That, in part, explains the lack of new blood coming in. But what about the many people who are simply forsaking fishing? Could that be due to lack of fish? I don't know what it's like up where you are, but the fishing along the south coast here is probably the best fishing I've had in the whole of my life as a match angler. And the cod fishing is as well on the south coast. I won a match oh, only about six weeks ago, seven weeks ago, fishing to size limits for whiting, and I had 86 whiting in five hours off the shore. That is absolutely unheard of. Now, when I first got into fishing, we were winning matches with sort of two or three pound, and now you're talking about that number of fish. And interesting enough, ever since I've been match fishing, which is far too many years, I've kept a record of every match I've fished, what I caught, what the weight was, what I won, and everything else. And I can go through, looking at that book, and go through, I was reading it the other night, going through it, the weights I'm, we're achieving now are far greater than what they were 30 years, 40 years ago. 
which may surprise you. The species of fish we're catching are far different. When you go back 40 years ago, the species were your prime fish, you were mainly your sole and your place and your bass. But now, generally, the weights are made up with your dogfish, your smooth end, we're whiting at the moment. The species have totally changed. But I, uh, it's really interesting when I go look through this book, and um, you know, every single match, even if I haven't done any good, I've recorded where it was and what we caught, what I caught, and so forth. And it makes very interesting reading. What do you make then of the Sea Angling 2012 survey, its implications, and in respect of those, the seeming unwillingness on the part of the powers that be, particularly our EU partners, to act, with bass being a prime example? I think it was done for the convenience of the people doing it rather than actually a serious survey. I think it is a complete farce, to be quite honest. The bass issue is something you shouldn't really get me on to. <laughs> I'm a firm believer, and you probably won't agree with me with this, that I think it's totally wrong to try to protect any one given species. Because you upset the, the complete marine balance. My belief we should be protecting the whole marine environment, all the species, the food chain right at the bottom, the sand hills and the pouting which get hoovered up for fish meal. If you protect them, then the bigger fish are going to explode. Take away their food source, and however much protect the bass and so forth, they're not going to survive. You've got to start at the bottom, not the top. Yeah, I can see that argument. It's just that... You have the Bass Society, the Mullet Society, and all these various one-species societies. Fair enough, yeah, that's what they're interested in. But my interest is in protecting the whole marine environment, and always has been. In some ways you have to ask just how important bass actually are. True, they are the iconic anglers' fish, but in reality, far more effort and money is put in by UK anglers into catching species other than bass. The most important species which lives, without any doubt, is the flounder. The humble flounder is the first fish that nearly every youngster catches, but they're the ones which are scooped up for pot bait and all the rest of it. Cod are very, a very emotive species. Bass are more of a sports fish. Um, I've got to be very careful with my words now. Generally speaking, the people who go bass fishing are slightly more affluent than people who say go cod fishing off the shore. It's a different type of person. The people who go out bass, the people who are going out for day sports fishing, rather the people who go out for cod or flounders, they're going out, yes, to go fishing, but also to bring some food back to eat. There's a big fundamental difference between the two. I attended a presentation when the survey results were released and ended up getting into a rather heated debate as to the validity of the whole thing. When they say that dogfish, for example, make up only 4% of anglers' catches, you can't help wondering who have they asked. I wish that I could catch 96 fish to every four dogs. On that basis then, for me at least, the results are a complete not a farce. They mean nothing at all, the results don't. They don't mean a thing. It was done the cheapest way they could do it and the easiest way they could do it. And mind you, I don't think a lot of anglers cooperated particularly and didn't want to cooperate. Because I think a lot of people were very suspicious about why they actually wanted it done. Which I can understand to a degree. Having said all that, the conclusions look very promising indeed. Yes, it is fairly favourable. Um, you haven't yet asked me the most potent question of the whole lot, have you? You haven't asked me what I think of a rod licence. Consider it asked then. I go course fishing as well, so I've got a course rod licence. I believe there should be one licence, but I would only support that 
if the money you raise through a sea license was put back into the sport by building slipways, by providing washing facilities, by providing money for coaching. I would be totally against such a license if the money was just going as another tax for government. I believe it would, but it not necessarily. There is some countries where it has not done. Holland's a typical example where the money goes to their national body now. In Croatia, they introduced a rod license about seven years ago. And the national body gets a third of the income, which they spend on coaching. And they got one of the best coaching systems in the world now. Then there's policing it. In America, for example, not only the license money, but the fines too, all go into the same self-sustaining pot. If they did bring in such a license, there'd be no problem in policing it at all. You'd only need a few high-profile cases and everybody would fall in line. Exactly the same in Portugal, and the rod license in Portugal I'm 100% against because it, the money goes to retired commercial fishermen. But everybody was against it and said it won't work, etc, etc. But within a couple of years, there's some high-profile cases. Now everybody who goes fishing in Portugal buys a license. But our current enforcement body, IFCA, of which I happen to be a representative, allowed the Eden to issue warnings, never mind prosecutions. So how can we expect to see it policed? Well, I think they would do, because there'd be money raised for doing it. I don't know uh, what happens with your IFCAs and so forth up that your end, but the one down this end, I must admit, the southern one, they are quite active on trying to chase people around and policing and taking people to court. Moving on now from the present to the future, how do you see things shaping up for sea anglers generally and shore match angling specifically? I'm looking at the crystal ball at the moment and putting my hands over it to see if I can get a clear reading on it. Um, it's changing. There's a lot of matches of catch and release now as you pull your way up your way. Whether that's going to backfire on us, I don't know. I'm not sure. I think it could be. I'm happy if I fish a, a catch and release match. I'm happy if I fish weight match. It doesn't worry me because I take a lot of my fish home to eat anyway. That's, I suppose, why I went fishing to start with anyway. But the future of the matches... Some matches are doing very well. I think they've got to make the matches so they're structured to attract people. Not just attract the top match anglers, but attract Mr. Average. The one match I did yesterday, yes, they had five prizes for the top five anglers. But the person who caught the longest roundfish and the person who caught the longest flatfish won as much as I did for winning the match. And they also had a second in that category, which puts the luck element in, because anybody can catch that lucky big fish. And hence they get a big entry. And I think that is the way they've got to go, rather than the prize table, first, second, third, fourth, down to about tenth, where Mr. Average probably won't get a look in. They've got to structure it, so you put that lucky big fish element in there with prizes. And then I think Mr. Average will go to matches call me a tight old farmer if you like I don't like some of the ways they're going where they've got 25 30 pound matches with huge prizes and so forth I personally don't like that I've always been a great believer in, in spreading the prizes right down spreading the categories of prizes to give everybody a fair crack of the whip yes you may have your UK masters and major competitions where you've got big cash prizes but for the general opens and so forth I think they've got to look at attracting Mr Average there's not enough match anglers out there to um, fill your entries up at your competitions. You need Mr Average there, otherwise you haven't got a competition. In terms of fish numbers, as well as participation numbers, do you think that our generation may well have seen the best of it? 
As far as numbers of people going fishing is concerned, most certainly yes. But as far as the fish is concerned, as I've said already said, the fishing at the moment along the south coast is the best I've known it in 50 years of fishing. But the species we're catching are different, so it's, it's, it's a changing. When I first started fishing, black bream were a rarity. Now I can go down on my local beach in the summer with a light spinning rod and get myself 20 or 30 black bream in a session. And this may surprise you, when I was going through my records the other day, I didn't catch a dogfish in a competition for the first 20 years of my angling career. Or a smooth come to that. But now they're commonplace. So it's like everything in life is changing. The big question, I suppose, is why is it changing? Is it global warming or commercial pressure on some species, but less so on others affecting the balance? What are your thoughts there? Global warming's got to have an effect. The warming, the sea temperatures, um, I say the species, well, you, you know it, yeah, in the smooth end. Originally, they were only on the south coast, and now they moved right up to Scotland. And the same with the species such as triggerfish. We used to get them just for a few weeks, maybe. The first ones I caught was probably 20 years ago. We used to get a few, but now they're here for probably two or three months. We're catching them and catching lots of them. Things like your red mullet, which are another warm water species, we're getting far, far more of them. What about losing species too, as everything seems to be pushing further northwards? Well, whiting is one you'd think, and codling, and I say this is the best year for whiting and codling I can never remember. Maybe extra food availability too, through some species going into decline, has also encouraged the explosion in species such as dogfish. There's no doubt about that at all. Um, in the sea, you've got X amount of food. If you take out a load of bass, a load of fish, another species is going to explode because there's X amount of food to be eaten. If the food's there, you're going to get a species explode to eat it. Yeah, and unfortunately, in this case, it happens to be the dogfish. We don't get that many dogfish down here, because I'm not a boat angler, but um, I do go in the boats occasionally, but we don't get that many um, dogfish, not in my particular area. I think that we must have your share up here in Lancashire. If there are too many dogfish here, I go and sit on the river and go chubbing. I do enjoy my course fishing in the summer. I fish the Avon a lot, trotting for roach, rudd and chub. And surprisingly enough, although I've, I've probably made my name as a match angler, I do far more freelance angling than I do any other sort of fishing. I love being by myself on the rocks. And I did have a 14-15 underlit a couple of weeks ago off the beach, doing a feature for sea angler at the time, so it was rather nice. <laughs> I must confess that I started doing quite a bit of river fishing myself recently, particularly for barbel when it's too windy to go out in the boat. But if the dogfish explosion continues at the expense of other species, then even I might see this alternative as taking on a more significant role. We'll see. In the meantime, a very big thank you to Chris Clark for sharing his experiences with us here.